How you doing, folks? This is Mark LaLama, and you are listening to Talking Blues. So tell me about your chicken farm. (laughs) (laughs) All right, all right, all right, all right. It's not a chicken farm, it's an egg farm, correct? Well, yeah, well, we keep pets, chickens, and a byproduct of our pets is that they lay eggs. So, uh, you know, it started when my wife turned 50, and her brother wanted to give her a present, and he's a, he, he's a woodworker of sorts. So he said, I want to build you a garden shed. And my wife said, I don't want a garden shed. I want a couple of chickens, so can you build a little chicken coop? And he said, no problem. So a little chicken coop turned out to be an eight by 10, uh, like cabin. And, and I had ordered six chickens and this thing will hold, a, you know, about 30 chickens. So I went and ordered 24 chickens more. And, uh, so we started having, we had about 30 chickens and then we had all these eggs. So we started giving the eggs away. And then my brother-in-law said, Hey, I, I, I want to start a little, little farm and sell eggs, but I don't have the land. Can I, can I garden at your place? And we said, sure. And then he built a little veggie stand at the, at the road and he started selling vegetables. And then we said, well, we got all these extra eggs. Let's see if we can sell eggs. So we started putting our eggs at the end of the road. And next thing you know, we had customers lining up for eggs. So we ended up getting more chickens. Now we have 78 chickens and we, we give most of them away, but we sell some at the road too. So, wow. So, when your wife said, I want a couple of chickens, yeah. what, what inspired that? Well, you know, when, the, when our daughters were young, uh, I think in kindergarten, grade one, they had chickens uh, in the classroom as pets, like some sort of, you know, you know work subject. And, and then when they were done teaching them about chickens, the teacher asked the kids, who wants chickens? And I can't remember which of my kids... <laughs> It said, we do, you know, so we said, yeah, so we, we got four chickens and, you know, we, we, we had just moved here like a few years before. So there was a, there was a place for it. Anyway, we kept four, four chickens and then we had chickens for a couple of years. I think the teacher, every year we would get the chickens from the classroom and then uh, we didn't have chickens for a few years and, and my wife missed it. So, um, now it's kind of (laughs) like... I get up and it's become like our thing. Like we, I, I can't imagine life without chickens, you know. How much work is involved in, in having all those chickens? Um, well, you got to feed them and <laughs> <laughs> you got to go collect the eggs. You got to keep their, the thing is the the most important thing is you got to keep their living conditions clean, really clean. Because I didn't know this, but a real egg is an unwashed egg. So when a chicken lays an egg, it secretes a bloom that it's wet and it seals the egg airtight and makes it fresh. That's why in certain countries, they don't keep their eggs in the fridge because those are unwashed eggs. So they can stay out on the kitchen counter for weeks, right? And the other thing is it keeps it fresh. It tastes completely different than a store-bought egg. So it's, I learned something, you know. Wow. Yeah. And, and so it's not really a business, it's a hobby. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, totally. 100%. <laughs> <laughs>
Thanks for that. And I think that's it for the podcast. Oh, great. Thanks. <laughs> Thanks for having me. <laughs> so, Mark, tell me how music came into your life. I have a feeling that you come from a very musical family. Yeah. Uh, well, my father was so passionate about music. You know, um, he played woodwinds, clarinet ma- mainly, and classical music was his his first love. And it seemed as we grew up, it was really important to him that we all play music. I have three brothers. So, uh, you know, we started first, all of us, I think, definitely myself and my older brother, Rob, we started on accordion and uh, being taught by the nuns. And uh, that's a whole other podcast. So, <laughs> so uh, um, yeah, it, it became, and my father had, had kind of weekend band, like all growing up and they would rehearse at our house. My dad was the band leader. And I what just kind of music? It would be anything you would hear at a wedding. So there would be like, um, just like popular music. There would be polkas, waltzes, tangos, uh, begin Latin music, jazz, you know, everything, anything anybody would listen to or dance to. You know, music, I think it was basically music for life, music of different ethnicities. And, uh, you know, my dad played the German village, the Croatian hall, Ukrainian cultural center. These were his regular weekend gigs, you know. So he, it was, uh, so I, I just remember them rehearsing every week. And I'd be like five, six, seven years old, and I would be sitting at the bottom of the stairs because they rehearsed in the basement, and I could see through a couple of doorways to where they were rehearsing. We weren't allowed inside. It was too loud. Like, we weren't allowed in the rehearsal spot, and we didn't really want to go, but I would sit there and listen to the whole thing week after week. It was my highlight. I just kind of was mesmerized by it, you know. I get the impression that music has been a, a big part of your life, all your life. At what point did you think, I want to do this for a living? You know, it wasn't like growing up, all my brothers, by, so there's uh, Rob is the oldest. He's 10 and a half months older than I am, than myself. And then Dave is 13 months younger than I am. And then there's about a span of seven years. And then my brother, Paul. And the three older brothers, we started playing music together probably since we were about 10 years old, something like that. And we had a band called the La Llama Brothers, you know, and we would play old age homes and uh, uh, the wool, like the hospital, the hospital for the uh, patients who couldn't get out. Since I was a kid, I remember doing that, you know, and uh, really young, really young. I thought this, I, I know at least 12 years old, I thought this is what I wanted to do, you know. So you played those places basically because of your dad or did it have anything to do with that? No, it had nothing to do with my dad's band, but the the only reason, like my dad is the reason that all my brothers, you know, played music. It's, it's, it goes back to him, one person, right. you know, as far as getting started. And every one of my brothers, though, you know, played in their adult life in different you know, like they, they, they do other things for a living, but they played uh, professionally, like sort of on the side, you know, in different groups. So I'm the only one who did it full time. Uh, my brother Paul did it full time for a while. And uh, now we're 
you know, our kids are doing it. You know, my brother Paul has a kid signed, Christian is signed to Atlantic Records in the States. And uh, my oldest, Breton, is uh, an actor, singer. Uh, they are filming a Netflix series right now. And my Breton's sister, Dominique, just graduated for four years uh, uh, jazz vocal at the UFT. She just finished wow. them. Yeah. So everybody, it's it's a very, very kind of, uh, I would say, it's definitely really a, a part of our consciousness and part of our everyday, you know. So when the family gets together, does the guitars and pianos and accordions come out? Never. <laughs> Never, and I don't know why. You know, it's weird. It, it never happens. It never happens. <laughs> well, maybe next get together. Yeah, I'll, maybe, bring it up. <laughs> I'll tell them that you said we should do that. Yeah. <laughs> Seriously, no, it's never happened. It wow. never happens. You know. Uh, well, sometimes you know when I first like I I left. Uh, you know, we're from Welland. We grew up in Welland. I left when I was nineteen to go study music at uh, York University and then I stayed in Toronto for about fifteen or sixteen years. And then when we started having kids, I wanted to live in the country. So uh, I couldn't afford any kind of country property in Toronto. So we and I was touring a lot. So I th I said to my wife, let's move back. Let's find a farm, you know, and uh, you don't have to work. And and uh that's kind of what we did. It was kind of based on the John Prine song, you know, going to move to the country, you know, uh, have a lot of kids, feed them on peaches, you know. <laughs> and eggs. <laughs> yeah. And we yeah, we swapped the peaches for the eggs. But uh, so, that, you know, and then my brothers and I started playing together. We had a house gig at a restaurant in St. Catharines. So my youngest brother, my oldest brother, Dave lives in Winnipeg. So, and we played and we thought, you know, because it was a friend of my brother Paul said, you guys want to play here? And I hadn't played a, a bar gig, a, co a cover gig in maybe like seven, eight years. And I thought, or 10 years or so, I said, what are we going to play? You know, and my brother said, oh, we'll just play the stuff we grew up on and the stuff we played when we were kids. I said, all right, let's try. <laughs> let's try for a couple of months. Anyway, we did it for five years and it was so, like the most fun ever. What was what was that stuff that you were playing when you were growing oh. up? Oh man, it would have been, you know, I, okay. I can tell you right now when we were like eight years old, it was rock and roll. Sha na na, the Beach Boys, the Beatles. It was like three chord, whatever, three chord stuff, right? And singing, try to sing, trying to sing the harmonies, right? So we would be like, yeah, we were single digits and trying to play that stuff, you know? And then. So was it easy? Did it come back to you easily? It actually did. It actually did because the first day that we played, uh, we just started jamming and we played for seven hours. <laughs> so it was hilarious. You know, they were, mind you, they were feeding us beer. It was an Italian restaurant. Beer and wine and food was just kept coming. And we played for seven hours and we had a blast. Yeah. So, okay. So we got to go back. Okay. What you decided to go to. York University, I believe, with jazz composition, correct? Yeah, yeah. yeah. I studied jazz performance composition. Yeah, which so, was really my first exposure to jazz in, in in that kind of way. You know. Oh, you mean you didn't you didn't play that before you went to university? I think at the time, you know, like the world is so different now than it was. Even though I lived in Welland, which is an hour and a half drive from Toronto. Okay, but 
it might as well have been a week's drive because I never went to Toronto as a child. I never, I didn't know anything about the jazz scene in Toronto until I got, to, until I was 19, you know? So it just wasn't like a thing. Like, I didn't know anybody that was making weekly trips to Toronto. Like, and fast forward to my kids, they were in shows when they were starting at 15, 16 in Toronto. We were driving them four or five times a week to Toronto, you know, for rehearsals and things like that. So they, they think we live in a suburb of Toronto, you know, basically, <laughs> you know, so it's like it to them, it's just like one big kind of city, you know? Right. But okay. So when you were growing up and before you decided to go to York University, you were playing with your brothers. Yeah. What, what was the music scene like for you? Is it basically just playing old age homes and well no then aging halls and no the old age home thing would have been like when we were really young like 10 years old 12 years old i started in my father's band when i was 12 and i started singing and playing um i remember fender Rhodes piano when i was about when I, when i was 12 i started like going to the gigs setting up the equipment i was pretty big like i was five foot ten i was I hit six feet really, really early. Like by the time I grade nine, I was six feet tall. And so I would set up his stuff. I love setting it up. And then he would call me up like I'm 12 years old now. He'd call me up to sing like a couple of rock and roll tunes. And then I would sit there and I, mean, I, I and in like somewhere inconspicuous, I would watch either from backstage or in a corner where there weren't too many people. And I was allowed, now I'm 12, 13 years old, I was allowed to have two beers because <laughs> <laughs> I'm thinking specifically of a place in Niagara Falls, the, the German village, everybody in the band got t a two beer tickets and a ticket for a sausage sandwich. And so that I'm 13 years old and I'd have my two beers, my sausage sandwich and wait for my dad to call me up to sing an Elvis Presley tune or something, you know? <laughs> and then a year later... Like so, yeah. That would have been. I was twelve. A year later, um, I started playing the Rhodes in the band piano, and because uh, he had an accordion player, and and he had this opera kind of singer, and who didn't really sing rock and roll. So uh, he, I started singing more. I would sing all the young stuff, right? So at thirteen, and then I I grew up in that band every weekend, and he he played Friday, Saturday, Sunday, so it was like at least two gigs a week starting when I was in grade seven, you know? Um, so what made you decide that you would go to York University? And and what, what did you hope to get out of that experience? You know, okay, first of all, I'll, I'm going to, I'm going to disclaimer here that my memory, you know, when I, I haven't thought about this stuff, so it's, it might take me a little bit of time, but I remember specifically that the answer to that question. Um, I started asking my, piano teacher. I said, I want to learn about jazz because I got an Oscar Peterson record and it was Oscar Peterson and Clark Terry, trumpet player. And my jaw hit the ground it, the, at the virtuosity and the, and the beautiful sounds. And uh, I think that would have been my first jazz record. And I wanted, I, to me, it was like a, I wanted to solve that puzzle. How do they make those sounds? It's and it's like and it's still that burning question has never left me right so it's like I asked so he started my teacher Boris Boris Borgstrom 
we started intro to jazz kind of thing and 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 chord progressions very very kind of on the surface and also at that time i started writing songs and uh i remember my main motivation for studying music was to learn how music worked so that i could write better songs and what right? kind of songs are we talking jazz or any kind of songs I was writing uh, pop songs, but I was I was always kind of writing instrumental Latin American melodies, you know, like just kind of pleasant instrumental songs that probably, you know, certain. I was probably motivated by songs I'd heard my dad's band play, you know, just really pretty um, melodies, you know. So, and and when when you I, I see the idea of going after learning how to play like Oscar Peterson or whatever. And and you did get taught by him, did you not? Well, I did. I, I, when I was at York University, um, now the, the other thing is I had no idea what school to go to. I, I went to my guidance counselor and he said, well, York uh, is like the leading school for the arts at this time. So that would have been early 80s. And York University had a fine arts program, which I don't think a lot of schools offered. So I, I auditioned at York. I auditioned at um, Western. And it, Western only had classical music. Same with, I think, I auditioned at Waterloo, Humber, Mohawk. Anyway, I got in everywhere, to, to, honestly, to my surprise, because my piano teacher said, because I'd never really studied uh, classical music to any extent, but I had to learn a grade nine piece. I learned a grade nine piece. I asked a guy in my high school who I knew was a classical player. I said, hey, I need a grade nine piece. Can you give me a piece of music? So he did. He gave me a Mozart piece and I would, I shed it and, uh, and I learned it and I went and played it. And uh, I ended up getting in at all those schools. And my music teacher said, yeah, you won't be able to, you won't get in at uh, Western. They're really strict. And he went, he told me I wouldn't get in, <laughs> and I got in, right? <laughs> and so I was, uh, I was thinking, nothing wow. like nothing like po positive reinforcement. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I was shocked. I was actually shocked that he said that, and I, as I, the fact that I remember that now uh, must have really hit me. So uh, I went to I went to York because it had a jazz program, and it was one of the first universities to have a jazz program. So, and my father, you know, he was really. He kept telling me, go to university as opposed to college. And I found out later was because his hope was that I would become a teacher because he didn't think I would ever, ever. He said, you can't make a living as a musician. It's impossible. So I I love it. I, I, I now know that that just made me work harder, you know. Had you not gotten into York and you had to go to, let's say, Western for the going the classical route, what would that have done to you? Um, you know what? I think I think it would have it would have just you know at that time in my life I was so naive as to what was going on musically in Canada or anywhere. Uh, I think it would I would have just buckled down and learned it. I, I, I'm trying to think of that kid, who that kid was, and I think I think that kid would have just learned it, taken it as a challenge and just say, okay, I can do this, you know. And what was that experience at York Lake? Was it was it an amazing experience? Did you come out of there thinking you knew what you wanted to do musically? 
Um, that's a really good question. What did I think? Like, I don't know what your expectations would have been to well, come out. I, I remember when I was, I was studying, what I did was, uh, so I would go to school. In my third year, I thought, I'm not getting enough playing. Like, you know, it's so, there's so much theory and I had to take electives. You know, I remember in one course I took what's called the science of flight, a science course. <laughs> I had to take a French course. I'm, and I, by third year, I said, that's it. I'm done, man. Like, and, and I had done, I had a, a, a singer in my father's band later was, uh, had done a lot of studio singing and he introduced me to Paul Zaza who did a lot of film scores. And so at that time I got to sing on some film scores. So I got a, I got a, and I got to watch some sessions. Um, the same guy, when I was 16, this is, oh, this is, this is, okay, I'll backtrack a bit because this is, might answer your question. When I was 16, my father had a different singer in the band and uh, he worked in advertising and he uh, did a lot of jingles. So he told me, he said, I'm doing a, we're doing a jingle at a studio in Toronto, downtown. And um, if you want to come and watch, because he knew I was interested in music. So I showed up at this place, and, it, and the studio is still there. It's owned by Jeremy Darby now, called Canterbury. At the time, it was Paul Zaza, called Zaza Sound, on Dufferin Street, just north of King. Right. And I and I think I was sixteen or seventeen, seventeen at the oldest. And I think I took the bus from Welland to Toronto, and went to the or, yeah, some, and went to the studio, and I sat and watched. So I got there with Stu, and Paul Zaza was just finishing the charts. There was a, a horn section coming in, a guitar, bass, drums, and Paul was playing piano. And I'm watching him just kind of scrambling, finishing the charts. And then the guys start coming in one at a time, and he says, okay, we're going to run this down. And I'm sitting in front by the engineer, and I see this unfold before my eyes, and it was magical. I think that experience crystallized what I wanted to do from that perspective of a 16 or 17 year old said I want to be with these guys I want to be here this is what I want to do so it was a real eye-opener and my f my first exposure to a professional uh, professional musicians studio musicians and just how good they were and how fast they were and and I so I had I kind of had that as a goal in mind you know to be able to do that Okay, um, you're you're singing. Yeah. How did you work on that? Well, that's a good question. Uh, let's see. Well, growing up, you know, singing and playing were the same thing. Like it was just like, how do we get that sound? Listen to the, how do, like we were into the Doobie Brothers, for example, and before Michael McDonald, and we were, you know, we'd say, listen to the harmony. Like, so me and my brothers would try to emulate that harmony. We just sang. We sang, like, the same as, you know, learning the chords of a song. You learn the lyrics, and you just try to try to sing. So, um, at some point, I guess, I mean, my fa I remember leaving, going to school, and um, thinking, well, maybe I should study singing. So I took some private lessons with uh, a f kind of well-known Toronto singer, singing teacher, Rosemary Burns. And she told me I had a Stradivarius, 
you know, she said, uh, much to my surprise, I, I figured I was just some hack, you know. <laughs> and then my dad, I remember, you know, but they were expensive lessons. I, I think at that time, early 80s were about $50 a lesson, you know. Mm. So uh, I remember my dad must have thought I I could sing because he, he bought me five lessons, right. So at, I guess I had in the back of my head that I was a decent singer, you know. Never called myself a singer. But, uh, did you do any, did you pursue vocals at all at, at York? Never. No. Okay, so you come out of York University, what's happening at that point? Are you playing in bands? Are you doing the Toronto scene? Yeah, so, um, let's see. So I'm playing, you know, workshops. You, like, they put you in jazz workshops at the school. You meet musicians. And I got a call... What happened? Oh, yeah. I started playing in a band. Oh, man, my memory's foggy. I remember there being a few outside school bands that I played in, and they were, uh, one of them at least, was original band. So everybody was writing music. And then um, I played in a band, and we started playing Toronto clubs, like R&B clubs. And uh, so it was R&B with a kind of a jazz slant funk and stuff and big hair and shit like that and uh, <laughs> and uh you know like jewelry on your jackets and stuff oh my god and then those some of those guys ended up touring with with acts you know like label acts right and so it was it was all you know it started things started to kind of be exciting you know and uh then i started a studio with one of my best friends still, Steve D'Angelo. He's a primary writer at the Eight Plant. He's an Emmy Award winning composer. And we we just started a studio in his house. And we started doing gigs, television gigs and things like that. Writing and performing and just slugging it out as young 20-year-olds, you know. So, and then all this whole time, we're st I start playing with with more and more accomplished people. I, I started playing with George Oliver. Um, I remember that was some kind of, and Liberty Silver, some Toronto acts. And, and everything just kind of kept creeping up and up and up, you know. Did you ever think, I, I want to pursue jazz, or was that never the intention? No, I always, like, my whole life, if I ever had time to, like, work on my playing, it was always jazz repertoire. Always. To this day. And now, because I'm doing this project, it's almost two years old. Now I've been practicing jazz more than ever, you know. And it and it kind of started with Kevin too, with Sisters Euclid, getting really back into a practice regimen, you know. So okay, so but I mean, Kevin, that band is what twenty five years old. Yeah, they're Tell really about... they're really old. <laughs> <laughs> um, how did that? How did that happen? Well, yeah, that's okay. So I think I've been in the band now about ten years. I can't believe it's ten years. It's just like, <laughs> boom! It just flew. Oh, wow! So, how did that happen? Okay, so, oh boy, that's a now we're we're doing a big jump, I guess, in the chronological. But prior to prior to Sisters Euclid, uh, I I just started touring with people like Amy Skye, played with Mark Jordan, Susan Glukark, um, Jamie Warren. Who else? 
it just it's just like starts to roll. You know, you start to get in scene, they start touring, playing. And okay, sorry. How does that happen though? So you you started a studio, you went to school. How do you get into that scene, and how do you uh, and and to to play at that level? So yeah, okay. So I'm slugging it out, twenty years old, playing in in bars, and then you know I think George Oliver gig, the George Oliver gig was um, an important step because it puts you in a scene with a guy who had some real success in the '60s, and he's got a name, he's got a big, he's he's playing twenty gigs a month. Right, I had never played with it that much, like three, four, five nights every week, and uh, and some amazing musicians have gone through George's bands, and he and that was his selling point when he was when he asked me to join the band. He said, you know, a lot of people use me as a stepping stone, <laughs> <laughs> and I was a I was a twenty something kid, and I thought, well, I, I just want to play, and and the guy who played in, in George's band before me was Greg Wells. Who Greg Wells is has over a billion streams, you know. I mean, he he's produced Adele, he's produced Katy Perry, he's he's one of the heavy producers in Los Angeles now. So, and he was a monster player as a kid, you know. So, I thought, well, this is just to be, you know, considered in that world, that realm, is a good step, you know. Maybe it's a good indicator that I'm moving in the right direction, you know. Did you have any goals, or did you have anything that you? What you wanted to accomplish? Yeah, absolutely. But I never divulged them. What I wanted to accomplish was I wanted to play and perform my own music, always. But at that point in my life, you know, I, coming from where I came from, Welland, where there was not a real, there was no real professional music scene here. Everything was cover bands, right? right. And um, I just assumed that I wasn't, anywhere near good enough to be able to do that you know maybe because my father said you're not anywhere near good enough to do that <laughs> it's, it's, it's nice to know that you surrounded yourself with people who were very encouraging no no no, no. but I, I just i think i had a small town mentality when it came to that so my my plan was just keep learning keep learning keep learning keep learning you, you know you'll get there keep learning keep learning and uh and I'd been writing songs my whole life. I've been writing songs, but I never recorded them. I did a little bit of recording, you know, like when I was in high school for the United Way and like uh, charity songs, stuff like that. But um, I remember I was sitting on a plane with Amy Skye and and, uh, and she said, uh, how come you haven't recorded your songs? You know, I said, oh, I don't know. They're not ready. You know, and I was making it. Had she heard them? She, I don't know if she heard them. I may, she may have heard them. I may have played her one or two, like at a rehearsal or something. And she said, you know, uh, when you record your CD, she said, no one will care, right? <laughs> Except you and your mother, right? And uh, <laughs> and and uh, she was wrong because my mother did not care what I did. <laughs> so, uh, and, uh, and actually that opened my eyes said, yeah, what the hell am I waiting for? Like, why am I not recording my own stuff, you know? So, Sorry, can we just go back to what she said? What yeah. does that mean? Well, what she means <laughs> is that you're getting, basically it's, uh, what is the, what's that term? Paralysis by analysis. You know, it's oh, like, okay, okay. you know, it's kind of like, like she recognized that I was um, not confident enough or I was not... Uh, I was waiting for the songs to be perfect or like basically she said, you just got to go do it. 
Nobody cares. Like, don't be afraid of failure. You know, I think that's what she was saying. You know. Okay. okay. So, so, and which made me, you know, I, uh, I kind of said, yeah, fuck. Like, what's your problem? Go do it. Like, you know, it's like in every other part of my life, I think I was super laid back, but you know, I, I kind of like I was a little too fragile with my own material. But so. this is the thing that you were striving to all the time. So when you started working with other people, what did you learn from them that made you think that that helped you become who you are? Like working with Amy or working with George Oliver. Yeah. yeah. Whoever, like Yeah. I I think, you know, one one thing you learn for sure uh there is definitely a set of live chops, like how to play in front of people, right? In different sort of big stages, small stages, um, you know, concert halls. Like there is a posture or a um, a, a place to, to channel your energy. When you're a side person, Obviously, your job is to play as well as you can, but your energy has to go to that front person on its way to the audience, right? You, the, I think the audience has to see that this is a cohesive unit and it's the, the energy is going through that star, you know, to them, right? We're all working together. And there's an awareness of, of the guys on stage. Because I've played on stage with people who rarely play on stage, who are maybe studio musicians, who have no clue how to play live, <laughs> you know, they get lost in their, and they, and they create this break between themselves and the audience. So I think I, I really learned that, that you can't ignore your audience in a live situation. That's the whole point. The whole point is sharing this experience. They, you, you enrich their experience and they enrich your experience. It is a really beautiful, beautiful thing, you know? Does anybody take your side and say these things? Does anybody say, Mark, I, you know, when we're on stage, we should do this, or this would be more effective, or is it just something you learn through osmosis? Yeah, I think the latter. You know, I, I don't remember anyone telling me how to behave on stage, you know. Um, I, you know, in, in retrospect, now I know I've been on stage since I was a kid. You know, that be, I've been in a band since I was a kid, you know. And uh, so I, I think I learned it without thinking about it, you know. And and the fact that you worked with all these high-level musicians, is that just simply you work with one and then that gives you the credentials and somebody else is looking for a keyboard player or whatever and yeah. you just become the first call or whatever is that how yeah. it works i think word of mouth is is 99.9 wow I, I don't even know any other way word of nowadays you know we didn't have youtube when i was coming up you now you, you know you want to book somebody for a session or 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 for a live show you can go on youtube check out their musicality and check out their energy are they is that the right you know it's like a it's like casting for a film or something right because there's all kinds of talented people, but is that the right character for this? For the, the, are they going to get along with the rest of the band? You know, there's so much to consider, right? So, yeah, it's all word of mouth, you know. 
So you spent years on the road supporting all these great acts. At one point, another, you decide, I want to stop touring, or are you still doing a lot of that? I still tour. I I, I tour less. Um, you know, well, what's happened now in my personal situation is that I I play with the sisters, okay, mm-hmm. which I love, and it changed my life playing with the sisters. I have my own trio with Rich Moore and Davide Dorenzo, which I love. I'll, I'll play anywhere with those guys. And now I just started a project with Amanda Walther Abdallah, which I love. I love the project. It gets me practicing solo jazz piano, which is fucking hard, right? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I mean, it's pretty hard to fake it, right? So, and, uh, and then, and then I still, I still play with people I've had re- over twenty year relationships with. Like, I still do the gigs with Susan Aglukar, who I've known for about thirty years now. Wow. You know, and Amy Sky, same thing, you know, and uh, John McDermott, you know, I'm producing a record for John McDermott right now. So it's, it, and basically at my age, because I'm so old, I'm not as old as the other sisters, but I'm pretty old. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I I don't know if I, if I decide I'm going to go on the road, there has to be a lot of pluses, you know, and number one. Like I have, you know, Quincy Jones, I remember reading this when I first started producing records. He said, if you're going to produce somebody, you have to love them. You must love them. And it, boom, that was like a, yes, because then if you love them, that means you understand them and you can dive into this project, right? Like, it's not a music project really anymore. It becomes very personal. It becomes, you're like an ambassador for this person's heart, his heart and soul. And, and then you work that way. That's, if you work from, from that vantage point, I think you can't make a wrong decision, you know? So that's, that's one thing I always think about when I'm producing a record for somebody. And I kind of carry that into live performance too. Once you say yes, to, to a gig, you got to be there 100%, you know. Okay, so Amy says you should go out and record an album. Yeah, just go rec- and- record your album, stop worrying, you know. She slaps me and I go <laughs> I go do my record. And, and what was that like? What was that experience like? Well, it was so, it was pretty cool because, uh, so what I decided to do was I was producing um French artist, Michel Berube, and I had hired the musicians. It was Rich Davide and uh, Jamie Oakes. And I said to them, guys, we're going to track this record. I think it was 10 songs. We're going to track it in three days. But I want you to come a day or two. I can't remember what it was. I said, we're going to, before we do that, you're going to track my record. So (laughs) I said, so we come set up two days early. We'll track my record and then stay set up and we'll track this client I'm working on. So that's what we did. And we just basically recorded live off the floor and I did a record called Home. I think it's nine songs. And uh, after we recorded that record, what year was that? I don't remember. 2009, maybe? I think I had just joined the sisters. So 
um, I get a call from Davide, and him and his then-girlfriend, now wife, were driving around, and they said, you want to know what our favorite record is? And he and he, <laughs> and he goes, and, it, and so Davide says, I love this record, right? He goes, I dare you to get us a gig somewhere. I dare you to find us, find us a residency. I said, oh, all right. And, you know, I had a place in mind. It was the place I had played five years with my brother, my brother's, Coppola's restaurant. And uh, I said, well, every time I go into Coppola's, they ask me to bring a band and start over. Come on, those were great years. Let's do it again. Come on. They were kind of wild, crazy years. You know, <laughs> they were like, it, it, my youngest brother wasn't married yet. And he had all his friends were single. They'd, it would, it was, it turned into a zoo of a, every Wednesday and Friday. It was a, a lot of fun. So the owners kept saying, let's do it again. Let's do it again. So that's what I did. I booked a gig there for me, Davide and Rich. And, uh, I, I became, I had, I, I became so motivated by that, that I started writing a whack more tunes and they were much better than my first record. And, um, we like that, that particular gig turned into, you know, you in New York, I, I saw this in New York city the first time you go to a restaurant and you're eating and all of a sudden at about 10 o'clock, they start clearing the tables away. And by 11 o'clock, a whole new bunch of people come in. And by midnight, it's a full out dance rave. You know, it's like, it's a dance club. It went from this family restaurant to dance. So Coppola's, well, it wasn't that extreme, but it turned into every time we played there, every uh, Wednesday night, it was a little mini concert. And we started drawing more and more people, me, Rich and Dabody, to a point where uh, they were telling us like, I can't believe I can come here and see you guys for free. I feel guilty. We're not even paying a cover charge, you know, and we weren't making a ton of dough. Anyway, we stopped playing there because we got an offer from the Performing Arts Center to start our own. I actually pitched a series to the Performing Arts Center for the trio to be, uh, to have our own series. And then every month we'd have our, a guest, you know, so that we, we did, we've been doing that for five years now. Okay. You know? So for those who don't know, yeah. Rich and Davide are also High-level musicians who they're with they're the best high-level people. Oh, yeah, they're they're yeah they are smoking musicians and beautiful people, and they play and tour the world. Yes, yeah. Is this a band or is this you with them backing you up? Well, th no. The part that's me is it's my songs, and I'm and I'm singing. You know, though, though they both sing, but the way it started was uh, at this like was my record was the record called Home. And then we started playing live, and then I st I started bringing in more and more original tunes. Um, so it's kind of like you know the Mark Lalama trio is what it is. But the you know the chemistry between the three of us it's a band. It's like one guy will go, and the other if, whoever's feeling it at any given moment. You the other two he'll. You got to go, you got to follow them, you know? It's like somebody will go somewhere and then we jump in because that's what, it's, it's very, it's a very much like the sisters in that way, in the, in the improv kind of side of things, you know? So that, that little voice in the back of your head that said, I want to be a jazz musician one day. Yeah. Are you that? Is, are you that with your trio? Well, in, in the, um, 
the true spirit of jazz, definitely, 1,000%, because we've never had a rehearsal. And <laughs> never. And uh, it's there are no rules in that trio. Like, now, the difference, say, between that trio and the sisters is the songs are all vocal. Most 99% of the songs are vocal. Um, but after that, it's there's no rules. There are no rules. Like, I don't care what you do. You want to change the groove? And, you know, uh, at some point, sometimes we just yell out, I'll say, E flat. So we'll go to a different place, you know, like you hear it. it it's very, very improv based you know how difficult was it to establish your own name as a solo artist yeah you know i've never consciously i don't even know if i have an established name to at this point you know i don't know i don't i really don't i don't i don't know i know that i um people know who i am i don't know if they think of me as a solo artist or if they think of me as uh a member of the sisters or my trio or side guy or all of the above. I don't know, or a producer or a writer, you know? Um, I, so how difficult was it? It, it? It's been a lifelong journey, you know, to wherever I am now. I, I, I don't really feel like I, I gave up or let up. Sometimes I stopped playing without realizing it because I was recording records. So I was like, I, I remember at the time I got a call from, Kevin um, to come and sit in with the sisters. I wasn't playing a lot at that time, you know? So I was, I was such a studio head at that point. I, I was producing artists and I was trying to learn how to, you know, how to record properly and mix and, and stuff like that. And I just built a studio, I think, you know, so I, my head wasn't really into practicing and playing live and, and that at that point. It wasn't my priority. So it was kind of like an about face. but And I didn't really know the sisters super well, you know. Um, I didn't certainly didn't. I had some of their live. Somebody, a friend of mine was a big fan and would give me their live recordings. So I'd, I'd listen to them. But, you know, and I, of course, knew who Kevin was. And I I know I had played with Ian in a lifetime a different lifetime before that, you know, in the Toronto scene. And, uh, but I didn't know any of them really well. And, um, but I, I said, oh, yeah, I'll play with you guys. Right. <laughs> and, and I remember Kevin said, okay, I'm going to send you the charts. And there were, he sent me a ch <laughs> envelope of charts. So I said, what the hell? There's got to be a hundred charts in here. And he said, why don't you just pick 16 songs and, I said, no, no, why don't you tell me which 16 <laughs> songs you want? And so he did. And I remember, I can't remember the song, what song it was. And and so I thought, okay, I got to play with them. And I'm so, I was so busy. I said, okay, I can't look at this stuff. Right? I'll look at, I said, I'm going to look at it the Saturday, a week before the gig. So I remember picking the first chart and finding a, a recording and looking at the chart, listening to the recording and they were so different, right? <laughs> and I go, oh no! Like you know, everything I know, everything is gonna be like this, right? It wasn't. It wasn't. I just happened to pick the first song. There was. They went into a whole other section. I go, what is going on? And it's so. It was like, uh, 
I had a little bit of a panic mode. So, and it, and, but it, you know, so then he asked me to play with them again. I played with them a few more times and I instantly got the buzz from these guys. Like they're such pure, they were such a band, you know, it was, it, the energy was just, it just made me buzz, you know? So after a couple of gigs, Kevin Combs said, so, Hey, uh, Mark, uh, you want to join a band? <laughs> I said, let me think about this. Yes. <laughs> so, so then I thought it was funny because all the recordings I had was Hammond B3 organ. Rob was, what a great player. And Rob's playing Hammond and I go, wow, I really got to get my Hammond chops up for this, you know? So I rented a, like the, the Nord organ. And I had a friend of mine, Roger Nisnik, who's like a Hammond B3 aficionado. And he came over to my studio. We set it up and I'm playing and we're getting, I go, I need a really great live sound. And, and so Roger came over and we're like tweaking the, the thing. And, and, I, and I'm looking at the price tag of this organ. It was something like 4,500 bucks, you know? And I go, well, you know, if I'm going to play this organ gig, I got to have the right, you know, and I almost, so I'm just about to pull the button, you know, pull the purse string on this organ. And I get a call from Kevin. He goes, hey, <laughs> he says, we never had this discussion. Like we never uh, talked about, you know, maybe what your role is going to be or what sounds, you know, what, and I just, I got to tell you, you know, if I never hear Hammond organ in this band. <laughs> <laughs> and I went like holding the phone, like, holy shit. I'm glad you called me, <laughs> you know? <laughs> he So, so basically he said, you know, but this is Ken. Now I've learned Kevin, like he, he gets ideas and he's really hot on it. And he's like, sounds so sure. And so he said, like, if you just want to play a Wurlitzer and, plug it into a guitar amp or into a funky pedal and you know and so now i'm thinking all the because it it's you know it's a real consideration is what color what can i add to this great band like that you know and uh so i'd say the first two years i was kind of like searching for a color that wasn't organ right and the longer i did that the more i realized that the perfect color for this band is fucking organ. <laughs> it's it's a long toned because Kevin, you know, the way Kevin plays is very percussive, very, a lot of transients, attacks, and oh, it's just like stabbing you. He can get that pointiness, and the organ's kind of like maple syrup. So what I decided to do was uh, play really ugly tone organ. You know, as <laughs> instead of playing really sweet uh you know mellow kind of round tone organ i start experimenting more with uh basically like say if it wasn't the hammond like the organ on the nord so an organ through a bunch of effects and i started to get really excited by that so but i get the impression that that band never plays the same thing twice yeah like even when we did the video shoot yeah, <laughs> you just let, let's do take two, and take two sounds so different from take one. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I know, I know. Well, that's the magic because then that's see that was a huge, I, you know, I'm so grateful to that to the sisters because, uh, I learned that the only thing that's expected of you 
in that band is to be honest, is to be in the moment and to react to what you hear in the most authentic way. It's not about trying to reproduce the cool solo you played last week when we played this song, or even to play the same groove or to play the same changes. It's about digging and it's about what what's going on in your head right now. You know, you ask yourself that as a musician. Express that right now, right? So that was so freeing, you know, because I start to wonder, like, because it was I was the new guy in the band. I wanted to, I wanted to, uh, like, um, I wanted them to be happy with the new member. So I would practice, you know, practice the songs and go to the gig. And then I, I kind of started thinking, geez, I'm, I'm less happy on the performances the more I practiced. <laughs> before, right? The more I tried to learn the songs, when we got to the gig, the less happy I was with my performance, right? So it was because I was trying to, to call on things that I had discovered while I was practicing. And that's not, that's not that gig. That's not what that gig's about. That gig is about giving what you have at that moment. That's it. And, and people call it a punk band sometimes. True. Call it a jazz band. True. Call it a pop band. True. Folk band. True. R&B band. It is. Because it can be anything you want it to be at that point, at that, any given time. You know, it's a, it's these, we're not young kids. These musicians have been, they've, they've lived lives. And when you go see them, you're going to get, you know, where they are in their life right now. So. But, but nothing is ever spoken about that. It's just assumed that you will get to that point and learn that. Yeah. You know, it took me, it took me a while to learn that lesson to, and now I bring it everywhere I go, you know? Not just in music, and anything that's worthwhile. Another thing I learned: anything that's worthwhile, any lesson that's worthwhile in music that applies to music or performance, you know it's worthwhile because you can apply it to life. Period. Not just your musical life, your personal life. You know, your life as a citizen, your life as a husband, your life as a friend. You know, so I'm so grateful. I've learned a lot in that band okay so another thing that you've done a lot of is work in television and I, I presume film but definitely in television and you were involved with the Canadian Idol as yeah. the musical director is that correct no I was the um, uh, the pianist arranger I worked um, I was in the band as well but I worked one on one myself and a uh, vocal coach Deborah Bird, who's the vocal coach for American Idol and The Voice, and her and I were uh, the co like the performance coaches. So we would work with the kids. I would work on their arrangement, and uh, yeah, they often called me a musical director, but I, I don't think that was the right term um, because Oren Isaacs was the music director. He was in charge of all the music and how it went down, and I was kind of the guy on the front lines with direct with with the the uh, contestants you know okay so with your vast experiences in music with the various musicians you've worked with plus your own music and with the bands that you've worked with 
I mean, Canadian Idol is something completely different. Yeah. What did that experience teach you? Oh, man. That was... Uh, huh. That, that was a really big experience. Um, let's see. What did it teach me? You know, that, that was such a big production. I think they said something like, uh, by the time the show aired... There was eleven hundred hands, pairs of hands that had touched that show, you know. So I'd never, yeah. I'd never worked on a production so big, and so popular, you know, uh, number one show in Canada. Right? Um, it taught me. Uh, I think it taught me to to look, to watch, you know, and um, to kind of chill out until you were asked to do your thing, you know? Um, it taught me that you got to be careful what you say to people. It affects their performance. I, I knew that already because I had produced people in the studio. And um, it... it it's not a natural it wasn't it's not a natural thing you know to ask these kids a lot of them who've never played gigs to go stand in front of a studio audience and know that there's somewhere between a million and 2 million people at home watching them you know and they have a minute and 30 seconds or something to sing you know um so there was all kinds of um behind the scenes stuff is where what I I think where I kind of paid attention, you know. Um, it also taught me that um, maybe at that point in my career that I was lucky. I was pretty lucky to have that gig and be asked to play. It. Now, when I first started, there was no band. So my first exposure was I show up at a, a venue and there's 200 contestants and they are going to sing. Every one of them is going to sing to me, right? And this is the pre-show trying to get the t to the top 20 or something. And uh, so there's something like five or six songs they can choose from. And I have to be ready to play those songs in any key on the spot, right? So they're going to come and they tell me what key it's in and I play it and I got to make sure I don't make a mistake so that they say, well, the piano player messed me up, you know? So, right. so that was high pressure. That was like your brain's going, and you know, the camera, the camera's right here on your face, another one on your hand and there, there's all kinds of people buzzing around. So it was new to me to, to be in, in, you know, that, that kind of situation. And then it just kept getting more and more, uh, important that you that you do your job. I had to be very consistent and let them know I'm on their side, right? And they're competing against each other. So then we got to the show, the top 20, and there was no band. It's just the Ben Mulroney. Hi, Ben Mulroney, and this is Mark Lalama. And hi, Mark. And then kids come and sing to a piano, and that's it. So it was like my first kind of really high-pressure 
really great money. They're paying you a ton of dough. So you better not screw up. Right? And, and you got to like, be, the songs are condensed. So your char- I have to make charts that are precise because they're like where you think the song's going to go. Well, it's not going to go there because we only have a minute 20. So we have to skip that part. And so you got to be really cool and, and have your notes all right on blend and bang kid after kid. Boom. And you, you can't be the guy to screw up. So it taught me, it taught me to be disciplined and uh, just be on top of things, you know. Did you know how a lot of this criticisms on shows like that, yeah. where it just kind of makes it a it's not a star, but gives them exposure that maybe a, other people who spent a lifetime will never get. Yeah. Um, and as as a musician who has spent all your life playing, did that? I'm not sure if it affects you, but did it change your perspective on things at all? Um, look, to me, it was it was when I was a kid, or there was no Canadian Idol, right? I don't know no. what I if there was a show like that that could take ten years off your career, catapult you, you know, maybe maybe people. I think the basic thing is now is it, it was a tool use a tool to your advantage. If it wasn't the kind of thing for you, don't do it. You know, I, f- I feel, um, I do feel bad for some of them. Maybe some of them had a, a whole bunch of success, you know, but what I learned was that they weren't music stars. They were television stars. This was a television show. They mm-hmm. and, and Canada doesn't really have a built-in music star system. So it, it, they have a television star system, you know, because, uh, you know, so these, these kids became television stars for a year or two. And then most of them had to go back to their regular lives, you know. So I guess you'd have to ask them if it was worth it or not, you know, because uh, 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 if that show didn't exist for those particular, I call them kids because they were all, you know, most of them were 20 or younger. And, you know, you have to ask them if if it was worth it because they definitely would not have had that kind of notoriety, you know. I wonder, what is it about you that has afforded you these opportunities, like touring with some of the musicians you've had, worked with um, the TV gigs, to be asked by Kevin Bright to join this band, can you are you can you are you able to quantify that that what you might bring to the table that has gotten you to where you are? Um, you know, it's probably you probably get a more accurate an, uh, uh, answer to that by asking, maybe asking the people who have hired me. You know, what what is? <laughs> but I. I I I I'm gonna guess that it's. Um, I'm really interested in making music, or making a band, or making the situation better. Music or not, if if I'm out for dinner with people, like let's let's you know, let's make it a great a great time. Let's. I like people. You know, I like people, so I don't know. I that's that's a pretty specific question. I guess you, you, I don't know. You could ask 
people I've worked with. Ask Mark Jordan or Ian Thomas. I don't know. Uh, or Kevin. Don't ask Kevin. <laughs> do you have a philosophy that you live by? Yeah. Or do you have a like, work philosophy that you go by? You know, my favorite saying in, in, is, my new favorite saying is, I don't know anything. I don't know anything. And I don't know what I'm doing. I don't know. That, you know, like, uh, I say it all the time in the studio. Some, you know, we we record somewhere. I mix something and someone says, oh, my God, I love the mix. I love that mix. What'd you do? And I said, I don't know. I just turned the knobs. <laughs> like, I don't I don't know what I'm doing. I just turned. And I, to me, that's kind of my approach. I don't want to it's, it's stop trying to make things perfect. Don't even think about it. Like, when I bite into that. You know, when I bite into that eggplant parm, that's just the right amount of cheese. I'm not in my mind thinking about it. I'm just going to, I'm just going to let it sit there. I'm just going to enjoy it. You know, I'm not going to analyze anything. I just love the taste, you know. Uh, so my philosophy is whatever, like now, and now it is. I, when I was a kid, when I was just breaking in and doing my first sessions in the studio, I was nervous, thinking, you know, and then really trying to lock into the groove and lock in the click track. Now, I'm t I think I think of music in anything, any terms other than music, you know, you know. So like emotions, everything's emotion, everything's motion or colors or just like feelings, you know. So wh when did that change? You know, when when Amy said. Just go out there and do it, because you obviously were maybe not hung up, but you were concerned about how it would be received. Yeah, yeah for for sure. I just want, I, I maybe thought it wasn't good enough yet. I didn't have the right material, or you know, why? What did I have to offer? Uh, you know, I wasn't adding anything to the to the. Uh, I don't know. I don't know exactly what I was thinking, but I think everybody thinks that all the time, and and. Uh, Except now I don't. <laughs> it's, it's like, oh man, I I don't know. I think I, I think I you know. Okay, I've been practicing music my whole life, so if I never get much better than I am now, I still have a lot of experience to draw on that to make. And I've you know people. I love when people come up to me and say, and I've had this particular thing. And I, when you play a solo, I feel like you're telling me a story, right? In your solo, I feel like you've, you're telling me a story. I love that. I love that. They didn't say, man, I love how you start on the sharp 11 and you ended the whole solo on the flat nine. Oh, that was, you know, I, I'd punch somebody in the face if they said that to me. <laughs> I don't want that to be what people are thinking. It's like, I don't want to watch a film and and start analyzing the lighting and the cinematography and, and you know, the space between dialogues. I don't want to think about that. I want to be in that movie, you know? So that's what I hope, you know, that's why I try. I'm trying not to think too much. That's all. Um, Mark, my final question to you. So that little kid who listened to that Oscar Peterson album and said, I want to learn how to do that. Or how do they do that? Yeah. Do you know now? Are you there? I got a much better idea. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I, uh, it's, you know, it, that's the thing about, studying music and playing it never ends i i I, uh, I remember seeing and i just saw this about two years ago uh 2020 interview with miles 
Davis. And Miles was maybe 70 or so, you know, and he was an old dude and he's still cool because he's Miles. And at some point in the interview, in the middle of the interview, Miles said, I got to stop. I got to watch the game. And he puts on a base a basketball game and he sits on his couch <laughs> and his sock feet are on an ottoman. And, and the, and the interviewer just kind of looks at the camera like going, what the hell is going on? And, <laughs> And then at the end of the interview, the interviewer asked Miles, is, is Miles Davis happy? Miles, is Miles Davis happy? And Miles looks at him, yeah, I'm happy. Of course I'm happy. And he said, well, what makes Miles Davis happy? And Miles says, when I learn something. And that was another moment for me, you know, because I, I realized that when I'm like just itching to get out of bed, it's usually in the middle of... I'm practicing a lot and I'm learning these things or, you know, I'm learning something about mixing or, you know, maybe I'm working on this vocal thing. Like it always, it has something to do with learning, you know, and acquiring a new vision of something, you know? And so when he said that, I said, yeah, that's when I'm the happiest is when I'm really like working on stuff, practicing. And so I've been, you know, I've been studying jazz again for the last few years and really like listening a lot to Bill Evans and uh, Barry Harris and just getting into that whole thing. You know, it's like, so I can't ever see it ending. I just don't know. I don't see an end to it. It just, it's too invigorating. You know, it's not like I'm doing it to, uh, to, to get my next gig or something. It's just like, I do it because it's so much fun. That's all. That's great. Thank you so much for doing this. Oh, I, I, my pleasure. I'm thrilled. Oh, I, me I too. I got a chance to watch you play, and I thought, well, there's somebody I should interview. So oh, wow. I, I really appreciate you doing this. Oh, thank you, man. That means a lot. Thank you. Thank you.